Hello and welcome to the Hall of Fame podcast series featuring the best of the best movies of all time. We're going through the history of film and discussing the elite cinema from all generations. We are back this week to induct some more movies. My name is Matt Levy and we are joined by my partner, Mark Rossi. Are you ready to dive into some films, Mark? I am ready and I am excited about the two that we have this week. Yeah, this is a little bit of a departure. Last week, we not that we took a sidestep, but we had fun discussing Star Wars. And now here we are back with some different films that we might even get heated into the quality and the choice of some of these movies. So I think it'll be fun to discuss these two. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be different from Star Wars. I think we're, we're definitely in the same vein as far as Star Wars fandom. This one is going to be a little... I think we might we might end up on different sides of the fence here for some parts of the movies. Great, that'll make this fun. So let's start with the older of the two. And this is 1964's Goldfinger, which is the third in the James Bond spy films uh, with the series with Sean Connery as the famous MI6 agent. This is a series that now runs 20 plus movies, but this was really the Bond movie that made it a cultural star, that made James Bond a international figure and took him up to a new level that really previously, this was brought him up to like the Beatles. This brought him up to icons of the time and made James Bond a superstar. Yeah, definitely had a huge cultural impact. It really propelled this character and Sean Connery and his portrayal of the character, obviously, into, you know, the mainstream. Uh, ironically, with the mention of the Beatles and being on that level, there's a dig at the Beatles in, in, in the movie there as well. But yeah, it's, it's probably a, a pivotal film in, in the Bond history, because this is what really pushed it into, be, into, the, into the, the limelight. Absolutely. And I feel like I have to say almost like a disclaimer that when we started this podcast, I knew there'd be movies that were not all Oscar nominated best picture movies. When you're looking at Hall of Fame and all time classics and greats, you're going to pick some movies that are Hall of Fames for different reasons. And I feel like Goldfinger is one that I have to say that because this movie is not a best picture. You're not picking some of the best acting you've ever seen in your life. But this movie is significant, and I feel like that's why it's important we talk about it because of how big the James Bond series is and what this movie did for James Bond as a character. Yeah, it's it's important for us to kind of make sure that we're covering all different aspects of it, not just the like you were just saying, the Oscar nominees and the best pictures and the best acting. But it's not to to throw all the acting in this film under the bus, but you know, there are, there are films that are going to have a significant cultural impact in and of itself or also can be pivotal in a franchise, in this case, that is long-lasting, uh, you know, as far as its cultural impact. So I think we're going we're gonna to dive into it pretty deep here, but this film definitely belongs on the list there. I think most people would agree 
even if it's not the you know the pinnacle of acting i agree and what i want to start with is kind of discussing the dna of these james bond films and the, the dna of these films really began here the two previous films they didn't have the formula yet they kind of were testing the waters with how to make this character work and the movie making experience for james bond which has become now almost kind of formulaic through the dozen or so movies that followed but this movie starring sean connery the late great we just lost him recently he was a mega star and some people still see him as the james bond you can talk to people like who's the best batman who's the best james bond and i'd say most people depending on when they were born i'd say the majority of people do say sean connery is their james bond yeah, Sean Connery is going to be most people's number one James Bond. Uh, there's going to be a recency bias with Daniel Craig, but I think most most like Bond fanatics that have gone through the entire you know run of the series with all the different you know Eon productions and the ones that have been off to the side usually come to a conclusion with with Sean Connery being at or near the top. Yeah, I agree, and I must say that I'm a tremendous Bond fan. This was something that was put on me from my father when I was young and I watched these movies and I grew up with the Pierce Brosnan movies. So those became my favorites in my teenage years. And then I was more educated in Bond films and realized some of those are not the best, but they did play their part in making James Bond still relevant and, and significant and revitalized the character because it, it, it did kind of fall to the side. But the Sean Connery movies really st stuck the landing as far as the villains, the Bond girls, the cars, the gadgets, all of the things we know about James Bond really started right here. Yeah, you touched on it before, but it's, it's definitely, this is the film and I, I think in particular where they started to find what really works and find that formula kind of through the Pierce Brosnan James Bond uh, films I would say there's a there's a situ like a, I'd say there's a formula that they follow that almost feels like a law and order episode including like the cold open if you if you go deep into it that there are a lot of similarities there for better or for worse but there were a lot of the the bond staples in this film that really carry through for a dozen films after through multiple versions of Bond. Yeah, I'm so glad you you brought up, you touched upon the cold opens. That's one of the key things. The James Bond movies usually open up with either Bond pulling off some stunt or saving the day, and then it goes to the opening credits. And then you get this big theme song, which is usually some elaborate background video as you get this usually mega star singing the Bond theme, which usually was a really big deal, but that all started here. Here in this movie, we had the first theme song that was done over a, a opening sequence, which was Shirley Bassey, which was a tremendous deal at the time. And this continued now up until, as you said, the Daniel Craig films that are still happening, you get these mega stars that come out and do the next theme song. Yeah, the theme songs have become as iconic as the films themselves. You had Paul McCartney and Wings doing Live and Let Die, and then all the way through the Daniel Craig movies where you had uh, the late great Chris Cornell with the first Casino Royale song, and uh, the Oscar-winning performance from Sam Smith and Adele also with Skyfall. They've had a lot of, a lot of great, great songs for themes throughout the years. 
Yeah, and you can continue and, and find Madonna and, and name other random artists, enter their name here, and, and they probably sang a Bond song. So, you know, this movie in particular was based on an Ian Fleming novel, which most of them were, at least the earlier ones, 1959 novel, and produced by Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, which was their main producers for a long time. And this was the first of the four Bond films directed by Guy Hamilton. And we really put his mark on the James Bond films here, introducing so many things, as we said, that became the, the, the foundation of Bond, one of them being the importance of the character Q. For people that don't know, Q is sort of the gadget guy. He's sort of the guy that gives Bond his, his guns, his weapons, his gadgets, and usually his car. And this one also, he gives him the signature Aston Martin DB5. So there's so many things, as we said, but Q being one of them, that, that banter, that friendly back and forth they always have, that began here in this movie. Q is definitely a, a very pivotal character, I think, uh, throughout the films. Just even for a sake of familiarity, and also when you're going into the Bond movies, you want to see those different gadgets. What are they going to come up with there? What has Q got up the sleeve you know, for this particular you know, mission that 007 is going on. So I, I think, yeah, he he sometimes is uh, an, an un, understated important role for even just the audience itself there to kind uh, of build up the excitement. Yeah, totally. And, and one of the other staples that we I, I spoke about before was the villains. And this one had Goldfinger and he's probably top two or three Bond villains. You have others that come to, come to, to your mind, but Goldfinger... It's funny enough, the actor that does the role is actually dubbed because his, you know, his English wasn't sufficient enough. So actually, if you watch the movie close enough, you have to really look closely. But the original, it was dubbed because they liked him as an actor, but his English just was not good enough. But he's a signature Bond villain, Goldfinger. Yeah, he's a signature Bond villain and provides one of the signature moments for this film, you know, that famous early scene uh, of the the Bond girl, I guess in this case, uh, for the film, when he kills Jill with the you know gold paint with, I'll put it in quotes, we'll say for audio purposes, for uh, skin suffocation, which <laughs> is not a medical thing, but makes for a really cool, cool scene and iconic, yeah. iconic uh, look. Yeah, that has been now almost a cultural thing. It's been even mentioned in future Bond movies and touched upon, but the gold, yeah, the gold suffocation of the skin, as it's been said. But yeah, Jill Masterson was played by Shirley Eaton. That was a big deal. She's not in the movie much, but that is a tremendous moment. And she's one of the Bond girls along with Pussy Galore. And the name always uh, is, is a laugh for people played by Honor Blackman. But you had here in, in, in Pussy Galore, a tougher female character, which the, Bond was always good at that, having these female characters, they were tough as nails and gave a little attitude, a little spunk to them. And obviously not always shown in the best light. There are obviously a, a lot of times women in these movies are shown very sexualized. That's sort of, sort of the Bond thing, but it has become sort of a staple there being a Bond girl and they became celebrities. Oh, you always find like the, the biggest names playing the newest Bond girls. Yeah, I think uh, revisiting this film for this podcast, I, I found the portrayal of the Bond girls in this film to be 
oddly much more progressive than their 90s counterparts. Pussy Galore, name notwithstanding, is a fantastic feminist character for the most part, uh, which is surprising for a film in the 60s there. Uh, so I, I think they did surprisingly a great job with the Bond girls being a little bit less disposable than they ended up being in, in subsequent films. But, you know, I, like we were going over, this is where the formula kind of starts. So, you know, they they didn't have to adhere to a specific type of portrayal of uh, a Bond girl to, you know, meet the audience expectation. Yeah, they definitely had some freedom at this point still to kind of do their own thing. But, you know, the story here, you know, for Goldfinger is the film's plot generally is Bond investigating gold that's smuggling by Goldfinger, the the main villain, and eventually uncovering his plans to contaminate the U.S. depository at Fort Knox. And there are some silly moments, uh, you know, when you go into Fort Knox, it's not actually Fort Knox, you see the gold everywhere. So it's kind of a joke to people that, you know, if you actually went to Fort Knox, it wouldn't be just gold laying out everywhere. But, you know, there are some epic scenes and, and the epic villains. We touched upon Goldfinger. You have one of the main sidekicks here, an odd job, who is sort of, you know, Goldfinger's manservant, his sidekick, who threw his hat, a deadly hat throwing uh, weapon. Yeah, I was waiting for us to get to odd job. As a fellow Korean, while I was growing up, I got a lot of, a lot of odd job uh, nicknames as I was... Uh, you know, making my way through life. But yeah, he's he's another iconic type of character with that that hat. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, they, it's, being, obvious, uh, it's obviously uh, Austin Powers has paid a lot of homage to that character and Odd oh, yeah. Job. He was pretty intimidating, you know? He didn't really show a lot of emotion. He was this big, I think he was a bodybuilder in real life, I've read. And he was very intimidating. He's a very well-known Bond villain. You know, he's well-dressed as well. He's always, I think, usually like that suit or tuxedo as well. So he was a very cool, intimidating, you know, really emotionless villain, almost robotic. Yeah, I think the way that they had him portray the, the character made him even more effective. You know, as far as being immovable, he was basically like a, a piece of iron, essentially, to try to fight against, uh, which ends up being his undoing. But also, you know, having the decision to make him basically play as a mute for the most of the movie adds to the intimidation. So I think he, he plays a, a really great role in providing bond with someone that he can't really try to get a, he can't really get a good read on because there's nothing to, there's nothing to get from him. He barely emotes anything. He doesn't speak and he apparently feels no pain. So bond <laughs> doesn't, it is at a major disadvantage with, with, uh, with odd job. Yeah, and I think future characters like Jaws, that is another staple Bond villain, I feel like he almost carries on that torch of this big, tough, you know, Bond is kind of like a David and Goliath type situation. This is another one of those where Bond has to outthink his enemies or out outmaneuver them. So yeah, I think it's a very successful villain. So is Goldfinger. You know, this is where Gold, the villains start monologuing their whole plan and tell James Bond what they're going to do, you know, before they do it. But as you said, there's some famous scenes in this movie that are really unforgettable. You got the gold body, you know, of the, of the Bond girl. You have the scene where Bond is laying on the plank with the laser, slowly, slowly, slowly working his way up to his crotch area. And that's sort of a famous scene with Goldfinger's famous quote, 
known Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And it's, it, there's some really just famous scenes that they're part of American, I'd say film history. Yeah, that line is is such a fantastic line, and it's it's really lived on uh, for a good reason. It's just a it's just a perfect perfect retort for someone with the quick wit of Bond as he's trying to think his way out of it, and just completely shuts him down. It's a, it's just a phenomenal line. It's great, and that laser beam itself. I, I read that it was actually an optical effect they added in post production, and when they do the close up of it, it's actually a blowtorch from underneath the table made to look like flame, like cutting through metal. So they, they used some nice practical effects there, which obviously in the, in the 60s here, they weren't doing too much as far as CGI and they weren't gonna, they didn't have real lasers to use. So it was pretty cool. Uh, I love practical effects like that. And it's quite effective today watching that scene. Yeah, that scene is definitely one of the, the scenes that I, I think really has aged well between the effects, like you were going over the practical effects and that particular line and that delivery, the te- you can feel the tension ratcheting up. So that's something that doesn't really age out. I think that plays great now as it did back when the movie was released. Now, I think there are some other scenes in the film that don't play off as well. There are a few scenes, especially early in Bond's vacation after the cold open, where it is jarringly, jarringly apparent that they're using green screen. So as a modern moviegoer, I think that kind of stands out. And watching it through the modern lens, which is impossible not to, there are some scenes that seem, I'll say, problematic, particularly Bond and Pussy Galore's fight turned into lovemaking i guess with or with implied consent maybe i don't know it felt uh yeah, there are some things that haven't aged well and that's the content where you know james bond actually you know slaps a girl's tush at one point things like that and there's also some effects yeah. that have not aged well you know when you first watch these movies whether on vhs or dvd or cable you got away with some of that bad visuals but when you watch it on blu-ray or hd you really start to see the bad effects or bad green screen work that yeah they, they had limited budgets i mean this was the biggest budget of the bond films at the time but you're still talking about probably a two three million dollar budget for a movie that was a blockbuster this movie was the first bond blockbuster and it was a phenomenon this movie the first, I think, day or two in New York that it was out, it was running 24 hours straight. People were lining up to see this movie. They actually said that in multiple countries around the world, it, it broke Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest grossing film of all time. So there was demand, and this movie was an overnight success, making sequel after sequel already getting pushed into the work. So this movie was a phenomenon. Yeah, there's no denying it was a phenomenon. It was a benchmark in the series that pushed it into its you know, cultural status today and cult-like following that uh, will continue well, well into the future. There's no denying the, the impact of it and overnight success, the return on investment that they got on this was amazing. Yeah, totally. And last thing I want to say, as you said, is the, the impact this film had. You were just touching upon that. And beyond just the James Bond movies it impacted, but this impacted spy films as we know it. Everyone wanted to be make the next James Bond type. I'd say Born Identity, you know, the Born movies probably wouldn't exist, or even the Mission Impossible movies. These movies are, are spy movies, you know, through and through. And they've also James Bond films have been 
mimicked and poked fun at through, you know, the Simpsons and Austin Powers and all these different series that have had a lot of fun poking at the silliness of James Bond, because sometimes some of this stuff is over the top and ridiculous. And these are blockbusters. These are not, this is not the Godfather. This is not some serious drama. So it's, it's, it's very easy to poke fun at some of these uh, James Bond films, including Goldfinger. Yeah, it's it's easy to, to poke fun at there. Um, I think it's it's a film series, especially with the this iteration of the character, I'd say through the Pierce Brosnan, with the exception of maybe Timothy Dalton, where they kind of embrace that caricature type of portrayal, where it toes the line between, you know, the serious and, and the seriously comical, sometimes where it, it, it becomes apparent. Yeah, I would say the Pierce Brosnan movies, some of them, and even the Roger Moores, they go a little too far where they become ridiculously silly. And it took, as you said, Daniel Craig movies to ground it again. And I think James Bond actually influenced series like even Vin Diesel's Triple X movies, which were these over-the-top, ridiculous, almost like parkour-type action scenes. And I think James Bond is responsible for a lot of movies like this. Yeah, this movie and the James Bond character, I think, is is interesting just because, I mean, Ian Fleming famously had said that he came up with the name James Bond because he wanted to give the character the most boring name possible. And you take a guy with the most boring name that could have a boring job, because who knew if we didn't know about the James Bond films and, and have that within our cultural zeitgeist, who would think that espionage is cool? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. A lot of these people are probably people that do secret missions and no one knows their name and they don't get the spotlight or the profile. They're probably living a double existence. But people like James Bond, as you said, they're boring name, but he's doing these larger than life things. So I think this was an important movie and an important character to us to enter into the Hall of Fame. People might not like Goldfinger as much as some of the other movies like Shawshank Redemption and Star Wars, which are on a whole other plateau as far as just filmmaking in general. But you still have to honor what this movie has done and the formula it set up for much success and the love that people have for this this franchise. Yeah, I, I'd say even though it, it is formulaic and like we only think it's formulaic now because we're familiar with the formula at the time it was just the film. But you know, Goldfinger is a, a fantastic villain. He and Bond have a, a really great kind of give and take throughout the entire film. You have the iconic scene uh, with Jill Masterson. It's it's unquestionably iconic and influential. Totally. Well, I think you, you did a great job summarizing there between the Bond girls, the gadgets, the, the villains, the cars, the opening themes. There's just so many things we know and love and I think it's things you, as you said, you grow to expect and you go see a Bond movie and you almost enjoy knowing that these things are going to happen because it's safe and it's it's expected, but you also want to see what twists they're going to put on the formula. So uh, I thank you for, for talking about the first movie today, Goldfinger. And I say, without further ado, we jump into our second movie. Yeah, I'm excited about the second one as well. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. 
So we're going to go to now the 80s. We're going to jump exactly 20 years ahead. And we're going to talk about the Terminator. James Cameron's 1984 science fiction. I would almost say science fiction hard thriller. You can even throw in there. But this is a sci-fi film through and through. And starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the bodybuilder. This, this movie was... I think is a bigger deal now than it was back then. I think this was a small movie in 1984, but it's grown into such a massive franchise. Yeah. It's a massive franchise that is, and we, it's probably, I apologize for overusing the word maybe, but it's, it's impossible to avoid the word iconic when you're talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator. It is one of the most quoted films and probably misquoted films on top of it for for good reason. But I think because of the number of films that have come out there and people's familiarity with the character and the franchise, I think that if you were someone that was new to the franchise and you've seen one of the most recent films and you go back and want to see how it started, that people will be surprised with how the film feels you know, versus its subsequent, you know, counterparts. It really had evolved into an action franchise and it didn't really start that way. Yeah, I agree. And I want to use the parallel. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about Alien 1979 and that movie is also an action sci-fi film. And I feel like this movie does a lot of similar things. And then the franchise becomes more of an action over-the-top blockbuster film, but this movie's not that. This is this is a smaller film about, well, I'll get into the plot. It's this cyborg assassin, this Terminator, who's sent back in time from 2029, which we're only nine years away from, to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor, played famously by Linda Hamilton, whose son will one day become the savior against the machines in a post-apocalyptic future. So again, we're talking about, it almost sounds like I'm talking about Back to the Future again with this crazy time travel sci-fi story. But it is a simple story. When you really look at the nooks and crannies and look at the details, it's a very simple plot. Guy sent back to kill this woman. Basically, that's it. Yeah, when you when you describe it there, even in the briefest of synopses, it sounds like a fever dream. But... Yeah, which apparently it was. Uh, James Cameron had apparently had come up with this idea based off of a dream that he had while he was sick, while he was on vacation in Europe. Had a, had a nightmare uh, about a, a robot resistance and an, an overtaking. And most people would probably say that that type of a nightmare would ruin their night. Instead, he took it and turned it into a career. What's funny is, you know, you mentioned James Cameron. At this point, he was nobody. James Cameron had done really nothing prior to this. I saw one or two credits that are relatively unknown. This was his break. And this movie was not a monster success when it came out. They were very skeptical if if critics and people would like it. And it only made something like 80-something million dollars worldwide. It's gross between the U.S. and, and around the rest of the world. So it was not a massive success, but it spawned a franchise. And people realized that for this is kind of a small film, there's a lot of good work done here between the, you know, we're going to say the direction, the story, the writing, the characters, and and kind of the smaller moments. This movie is pretty powerful. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to visit this movie after seeing, you know, Terminator 2 or any of the subsequent movies after that because it's such a different feel. You you jump into Terminator 2 or Terminator 3 even and you can tell like you're in for the ride and it's going to be this blockbuster type of action adventure. And this very much is not that. It it feels more like, and we were trying to, to kind of decipher it, uh, how you describe it. It feels like an action thriller that almost delves into the horror genre a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a dark, tense movie. And throughout it, there's, there's very little day, daytime as far as the scenes that are shot. I can think of a couple. Most of this is done at night. You got the creepy Terminator, which Arnold doesn't do much talking in this movie. He's mainly silent. And they did that on purpose. They didn't want to give him too much dialogue because Arnold was not a, a successful or known leading man at this point. This made him into a leading man, but they didn't want to give him too much dialogue. So he becomes robotic and he seems like a cyborg, but it makes this movie creepier. And, you know, in our prior conversations, you kind of alluded to this, this kind of has kind of like that eighties horror type feel. Yeah, definitely. I think it has that that parallel to 80s horror films. It's very much this one killer, in this case, the Terminator, hunting down that final girl. So there are a lot of parallels there. I think it's interesting that you know Schwarzenegger, if James Cameron had his way, would not have had the role or any role in the film. The studio had pushed actually for him to be uh, considered for the role of Kyle Reese, but... James Cameron had planned to sabotage the meeting so that he could just reject him out of hand. But he met with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Schwarzenegger just couldn't stop talking about the villain. And Cameron enjoyed the conversation so much. He said, he's definitely not Kyle Reese, but I think we might have a Terminator. There might be an alternate universe where the studio got their way initially and Schwarzenegger is Kyle Reese and OJ Simpson was the Terminator. And what type of movie would that have been? A very different franchise. And it's funny because he became a action hero. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger through the 80s and even the 90s became this larger than life, muscle bound male, this action hero, even in the, in the movie Last Action Hero, he's even in that. Yeah. So he became this good guy. But here you have him in the first Terminator as, as the villain. You know, in the sequel, he comes back as the good guy. But here he's the bad guy. And everyone thinks of Arnold as this as the hero, but it, it's just funny here. They start as this robot, this cyborg villain. Yeah. He, he plays a villain fantastically. I think in, in this film, they, they worked with him. Uh, he had several ideas he exchanged with Cameron. So one of the ideas, which thankfully didn't make it into the final cut was he had a lot of trouble saying the phrase, I'll be back. Uh, he had a lot of trouble with the word I'll and begged James Cameron to change it to I will be back and framed it as he didn't think that a cyborg would use contractions. But luckily, he didn't get his way. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the I'll be back because it is probably one of the most recognizable and just known quotes of all time. You know, people probably say it in their daily life and say it like he says it just because of the Terminator, the I'll be back. And this movie has a lot of that. And in future films, they poke fun at that phrase in Terminator 2 and 3. It kind of gets said, I think, in, in, in fun. But yeah, yeah. The, his English was not, I don't think, great at this point. 
Yeah, Devin wasn't great at this point. Uh, to his credit, though, he he you know powered through it and delivered one of the most iconic lines in film history, and definitely the iconic line of his career, uh, which has spanned many you know decades and lots of different franchises. But I think even it's important to to note that the "I'll be back" is said one time during a particularly menacing scene. By the way, he played is played fantastically. Uh, he says, "I'll be back," and he sure as shit was back like two seconds later, destroying that guy with the vehicle. So I think that's a, a great line. And I think it'd be remiss of me not uh, also to mention the line, come with me if you want to live. That's that's another phenomenal line. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that a Kyle Reese line? That's a Kyle Reese line in this in this film. In this yeah. film it is. Right. So Kyle Reese was, was sent back to save Sarah by her son, John. So it's funny that he obviously spoiler doesn't make it through this movie, but he becomes the, you know, the kind of the guardian protecting her from the Terminator, but yeah, he doesn't survive, make it through the end. So this similar to alien, you have the main character, Sarah Connor at the end fighting off the villain on her own. And it's kind of interesting given that parallel of having the final girl who has to overcome the odds and she becomes a tough character. I'd say in this movie, she's still kind of the lady distressed needs help kind of can't handle all this but by the second and some of these future franchise films she becomes this tough badass lady but she uh she really changes her character evolves but here she still is sort of that trope as far as that female who needs help yeah i think there's there's definitely something to that this is early on in her development even within the film itself if you're looking in the universe of the film she's not a hard, you know a battle hardened right. resistance leader at this point she's just a waitress yeah but we do see the growth i think by the end of the film she does yeah. grow a lot and she realized the significance of what she's been pulled into and you know i think it's funny if you look at it through the lens of 1984 i think this movie probably came off as like a b movie i don't think this movie came out and people are rushing to see it it probably came off as this you know, because I watched the trailer, the 1984 trailer before we started, just kind of get a feel of what people yeah. think when they first saw this movie. And it's strange. It doesn't almost feel like this movie in a capsule. It's You wouldn't even be able to explain it the same way as you see it in the trailer. So it kind of feels like a B movie that worked out well. And you wouldn't think by looking at it because they didn't have a ton of money to make this movie. The effects, I think they do a good job. I think some of them are laughable towards the end. I think when you do see the Terminator himself, some of the effects don't come out all that well, but they sort of made something that worked. It all just worked, even though they didn't have this, you know, big budget, this big salary, this big elaborate special effects and set and this and that. They kind of just did what they could and made a movie here that spawned a huge franchise. Yeah, you hear James Cameron, you hear the Terminator, and you think blockbuster, huge success, and you think that's a slam dunk. But when they were making this movie in you know '84, even up to the release, Orion Pictures, who had the rights and distributed this movie, to say they didn't know what they have is an understatement. They had very little confidence that this film was going to do well. They were horrified of what was going to you know, how the reviews were going to look. So when the cast had kind of begged them to, you know, show the movie to critics, they only had one press screening prior to the release. And then it it did really well. Yeah, uh, they so, really feared failure here. And they were very skeptical of what this movie was going to be. And 
you know, I don't always think when I think of movie theme songs or, or music, I don't always think of the Terminator. It was not one of the ones that come to mind. You know, I think of Star Wars, Jurassic Park, E.T. You think of some of these just culturally known soundtracks and scores. But the score in this and the music, the theme song is very memorable. And you hear just a few notes of it and you know it's a Terminator and it's very 80s. Mark, anything about the music that comes to mind when you hear it? So, yeah, I thought that uh, on revisiting the movie that uh, the, the theme song obviously is very memorable. I think they do great work considering that it was done on a synthesizer, varying the the delivery of that that main theme throughout the course of the film and playing it different ways so that it has it hits different emotional notes especially early in the film there's no escaping how 80s it feels like in the opening sequence that that synthesizer is cranked you're like this is definitely the 80s it, yeah. i think that more than more than maybe any other sequence in the film with the exception of and i'm sure we'll touch on it the the fully metal Terminator chasing after recent Sarah Connor feels the most dated. The The soundtrack, especially in the opening sequence, feels very dated in the 80s. And that visual sequence at the end feels very dated as well. Yeah, I, I might be a biased being a watch a lot of movies in the 90s and Terminator 2. I feel like it doesn't feel as 90s as this feels 80s. This just between the music, the hairstyles, the outfits, the places they go. Oh, the, the hairstyles. Yeah, I mean everything here feels very eighties, and yeah, good call on the hairstyles. I didn't even think about it, but now that I'm thinking about it, the hairstyles were very eighties. Very eighties, and I, listen, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think the movie is very of its time, and as you said, the the scene at the end where Arnold Schwarzenegger's skin, or you know, whatever you know, you see that all comes off and it's melted, and you see the robot itself. It hasn't aged gracefully. It is a tense scene, I think, because of the music and the lighting and the fear in Linda Hamilton's eyes and face. And she's crawling along and the arm is grabbing her. So there is tension, but I agree with you. It's very, very, very poor as far as the effects and they've not aged well. I think that very final sequence where it's crawling after is where it looks its best. I think the lead-in into that... that the walking uh, and the chase, yeah. Oh, the walking and the chase is, uh, is almost unwatchable. It's almost uh, laughable because <laughs> she's running and then you, like, you see a clip of it and it's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's another one of those cases that'll be the second time for you know between these two movies where it feels very obviously green screened to the point where it's distracting. And the movie is so herky-jerky I can only describe it the way that when I first saw The Exorcist and you saw the spider walk down the stairs and I just didn't know how to react except to, to laugh. Like, I know I'm not supposed to be feeling any type of, of joy or and laughter shouldn't be coming out, but that's what came out of me. It was the same thing that happened when I was revisiting. I'm like, I know this is a tense sequence and is nothing to do with like the delivery by <laughs> Hamilton, but I just started laughing. You know, there are some things that are laughable, but I think at the end of the day, we understand why this movie deserves a place. Some of the things that, that I read that they said back when it came out was, you know, the relentless tension in the movie, which again, parallels back to Alien. There is a tension in this movie that is kind of throughout as the Terminator's chasing her. This movie is pretty violent. It is a rated R movie, 
but there's a lot of suspense and there are some parts that are laughable. There are some parts that you do stop to giggle, but the movie overall, I'd say, is quite tense. And I think looking back now, it feels like a small film. You think about Terminator, I think we've said it a few times, it feels like a blockbuster. But this, you have to remember what a original film this is for its time to make one of the best sci-fi stories of probably ever. You know, it, it, it seems so simple and it seems so part of, as you said, our kind of cultural zeitgeist, the, the Terminator. But at its time, this movie about a, a Terminator sent back to stop someone's from before they even had a son to who's going to fight all these in the, you know, this war in the future. It's, it's an original story that has really gone on to do some amazing things and spawned a franchise and video games and TV shows and everything else that's come with it. So I think it's important to credit this movie with all that it did. Yeah. I, I don't want to, to dwell too much on, on the, the, that final sequence there and, and completely discount the film itself. Like Matt was just saying, I think it's important that we celebrate that this movie was an underdog story, really. It's it's hard to think about it when you think The Terminator, when you think James Cameron with his billion dollar, multiple billion dollar movies and franchises as ever being an underdog, but really was the case here. I mean, he had given away the rights to The Terminator for $1 on the condition that he gets to direct it. This was not something that was like an ace in the hole for Orion Pictures. They doubted it up to the release but there were you know lots of decisions that were made along the way that helped shape it into a really great story i think where the the movie does its best work is when you're just following the story and you have that really great tension of this you know this presence that's just lurking in the shadows and right around the corner they do great work you you can feel the tension they do you know, fantastic acting with Linda Hamilton with kind of facing her own mortality and also having to deal with being known by someone else to be this completely different person and then slowly becoming that person throughout their ordeal together. And then you have the interesting question of, we know that John Connor had sent Kyle Reese back to protect his mother to ensure that he, you know, that, that the resistance happens. But also he unwittingly sends him back to be conceived. So it's it's there's some interesting questions that it that it chicken brings up the there. And it's definitely yeah, a chicken or the an, egg type. It's an, it's an it's a really interesting plot. I think I think James James Cameron did a great job with this story. And I think where this movie does its best work is when you're embracing that type of thriller and horror feel. Yeah, it's when they're on the end. Yeah, when they're on the run and they're in a hotel room and they're scared and they feel like this guy's always catching up to them. And I think it's so important you said that this movie is very different than the franchise that we know, Terminator. You think of these big action sequences and guns and explosions, and this is really a smaller movie, and the tension and, and the horror elements of it are really what you remember when you watch this movie. And James Cameron, this was his you know, big first movie, but after this, he does Aliens, which me personally, I'd say is the inferior movie to Alien, the original. Then after that, he does Terminator 2, which I would say most is probably the superior film to the original Terminator. It's probably a better overall movie as far as the action story plot, what it did and, and how successful it was. So it's funny. I feel like we had to talk about this movie because of, what it did and what it originated, but it might not even be the best movie in the Terminator franchise. 
Right. And it might not even be the most impactful as far as from a movie making perspective. With Terminator 2, aside from possibly being the superior film overall, when you talk about a storytelling experience, Terminator 2 is a pivotal film in movie making history for what it did with CGI. Yeah. And especially with how we're kind of like we're hitting it hard right now with how that final sequence looked. If you just saw this movie only and, and you didn't know anything about Terminator 2, you'd be like, Oh God, how how does how does the CGI look when you get there? Surprisingly great in Terminator yeah. 2. You know, it's but, funny you say that because you, you watch this movie and then you watch the sequel, and that movie was praised for some of the best special effect and movie making as far as the, the character that's constantly turning into this gooey silver-like form. That nothing like that had ever been seen before. And it was groundbreaking. And then you watch this movie, you're like, Oh, I guess only it took a few more years to really get that get special effect work going. But you're right, you know, that we're laughing here. And then just a few years later, movie making changed forever. Yeah, if you if you want to call back to a, a line by by Reese and from a conversation with Sarah Connor, it's like they nothing, nothing they we can't see, you know, see anything like that. And he says not for another 40 years. The special effects apparently they weren't going to be available for around another seven. But yeah. it's definitely such an important film both in the career of James Cameron and then if you think about the butterfly effect the films that he's made since then without this movie not only do you not have the other Terminators including Terminator 2 which most Terminator fans would say is the pinnacle of the Terminator films but you don't get Avatar you don't get Titanic it's it's crazy to think that without this movie James Cameron isn't James Cameron yeah you're right it started with this smaller movie which again we're talking about the terminator but it is a small movie science fiction movie that this easily could have been bad this could have been a, a movie that you watch on some strange channel in the middle of the night but it all works out and it all ends up being a, a, a good movie and i think that you have to credit the filmmaking here for making this feel take it seriously to make sure you make this movie feel serious and feel real and not feel too goofy because i feel like i've seen a dozen movies like this on in, at 2 a.m. on a bad channel that are just awful movies that was about time you know time travel robots and this just does it right and it's a grounded movie and it as you said propels a career with titanic avatar billion dollar franchises all from this small movie yeah uh i think the interesting thing also to to note about this movie what this movie does well is the the character building between Reese and the relationship with Reese and, and Sarah Connor. While I think the subsequent movies, specifically if you go into like Terminator 3, maybe not Terminator 2, but what they really do well is the action sequences. What you're going to remember most are those action sequences there. And I think a lot of the, the memorable parts from this film are, you know, not necessarily the, the big chases. Yeah, it's the smaller moments. And I am going to be in the minority here. I do enjoy some of the later movies. I, I enjoyed Terminator 3 more than most people. I enjoyed the Christian Bale Terminator movie more than most people. I did not tremendously enjoy Terminator Genesis. I think that was the newest one. I didn't love yeah. that one. Uh, the Amelia Clark movie, not necessarily her fault. Was there one after mm -hmm. that that I'm forgetting? Is there... Was so there was Salvation and then, Gen and then Genesis was the most recent one just last year. 
which was enough to essentially kill the franchise. Yeah, yeah. And I think James Cameron was partially involved. Yeah, that one is the one I didn't love, actually. I thought with the Christian Bale, I think Sam Worthington movie, I thought that was going to start another trilogy and then that didn't go in the right direction. But I thought it was cool to kind of finally be in the war era and I thought that was going to be fun. But then the reboots right. and this and that, and it gets confusing. But yeah, I think that the pinnacle, as you said, is probably the second film. None of that exists without this movie. It, it laid the groundwork. It, it did so many things right. The music, the character work, as you said, getting the right actors cast and the right director. And this movie, I think, deserves a, fully deserves a place. Yeah, this movie definitely has a place in, in the Hall of Fame there because of what it spawned and, you know, what it, it did really well. I, I really enjoyed the performances there. I think Schwarzenegger does a great job. I think he had a good idea of what would work for this type of a character. And ironically, you know, him being kind of robotic as an actor really serves him well in this, in this role. But I think that's also a, a credit to him to be self-aware of what his limitations were and what is going to allow him to be as intimidating a character as possible uh, without it, you know, becoming almost comical. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as we said, there's dozens of movies after this where they let him do a little bit more and let him have a little more lines and all of his lines be some, become almost a joke, you know, kindergarten cop and eraser. And some of these lines are just kind of silly hearing it from his mouth, but he became an action hero. And that all became from this movie that, that all started here, Arnold, another career that just came from, from this movie. So anything closing Mark on this one before we close this one out? Uh, I think, the the soundtrack for me was fine but the the work that they did on the theme for this song was was phenomenal i think the soundtrack as a whole i i think might be more forgettable for me but the theme and the way that they were able to kind of intersperse the theme with different stylings to fit the different you know emotional beats throughout the movie i think was very well done yeah, I love when movies do that. And I think I think back movies like Top Gun and other movies, maybe 80s movies did that a lot, but where they can take a theme and, and play it in heavy moments, but also slow it down and mix it for some of the smaller moments. And they become sort of an overarching theme to the movie itself rather than just a opening theme song. And I think that's great that you mentioned that because it almost feels like uh, something that carries through the whole movie and now has become a staple of the franchise. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, awesome. So, Mark, thank you so much. I'm uh, proud to induct these two movies into the Hall of Fame with you. And uh, anything you want to plug before we head out? Uh, as always, I'm always playing games there. Uh, if you want to check out some mediocre gaming at twitch.tv slash Ursus Fidelis. And, you know, we appreciate you guys checking out the podcast here and I uh, hope you continue on this journey with us going forward. Totally. Yeah, we're getting uh, a lot more viewers week to week and listeners, I, I guess that would be the correct term. And we're having fun and excited for the weeks to come. So please share with your friends, subscribe and on Instagram at Hall of Fame Pod. And we are now on all Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and also Google Podcasts. So we continue to join us different podcast feeds to find us. So thank you, Mark. Thanks, Matt. And we'll see you guys soon.